is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14a. That happens to be the lectionary reading for the 8th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as proper number 11, in the year B cycle of the lectionary. It is the scripture reading for July 18, 2021. This particular passage of scripture is an important text. It's the really the apex or the high point of the entire narrative that's contained within the books of Samuel and Kings. And today, during our episode, we're going to explore why this passage is so important, because it has to do with house. Now, as the text opens, King David has arrived in Jerusalem. The ark has made its ascent up to the city of Jerusalem, and David has finished building his own city and his own dwelling place. And so he's really beginning to reflect at this point in his life and his reign about all the distance he's covered since he was called as a shepherd boy in Bethlehem by the prophet Samuel. And so as we think about house and as we reflect on this notion of house with David, we hear first in these opening verses of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, David referring to the house that he wants to build for God. Now there's been a lot leading up to this point. The prophet Samuel called David as a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. And then David was a a dutiful soldier in battle for King Saul and in many ways became a competitor to him. David was a leader in battle. He was a leader amongst the people. And after Saul's death, he took the city of Jerusalem and then began the process of moving the ark up into the city itself. As David is in his own palace that's filled with cedar paneling and all sorts of uh, luxurious accommodations, David begins to wonder if he needs to build a house for the ark. In other words, that box that contains the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, a jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, this, this sacred object within the Hebrew community. What's not clear from this text is exactly why he wants to build the house. It The way the text is framed is that it's like a comparative. David is looking at his own house, seeing how nice it is, and that the ark is basically housed in a tent. And he feels like he needs to make a change in that situation. This is not an unusual comparison much later in the history of Israel, but not too much later than the date of the writing of this actual story. The prophet Haggai makes the same comparison. When the Israelites or the the Jews return from their exile in Babylon, Haggai reflects with them about how they're living in their paneled houses, but yet there's no temple built for God in Jerusalem. So this narrative of there being a place for God that is relative or equal or even better than the places we live in is nothing new. So David offers this reflection about the need to build the house of the Lord to Nathan the prophet. And just a side note here, this is the first entrance of Nathan into the story. We will see him again, of course, later. But Nathan functions as kind of a a court prophet for David, perhaps an advisor or a trusted confidant. There's really no no other statement about the motivation of David to build a house for God. 
The, the history that we read here in Samuel and Kings leaves this just a little bit fuzzy, to be honest. What motivates himself? Does he want to build a great temple for the ark out of a tribute to himself and his greatness, or does he want to build it out of a tribute to God and God's faithfulness? Is this building just a witness to David's prowess? And let's keep in mind, this isn't the first building that's been built for the ark. King Saul, David's predecessor, built a temple for the ark at Shiloh. And that building was still there for a number of di- number of centuries before and even after David. There's an important precedence around there's building for the ark. But what is it that drives David to do it? That's the question. Is this new house supposed to be a bigger and better house for the Ark of the Covenant? And that takes me really to my first key passageway in this week's episode. And it's this, that acts of devotion, like David, for example, should signal sacrifice, not might. Acts of devotion should signal sacrifice, not might. It's hard to tell in this story why David wants to do this. Does David have some sense of connection to God's unconditional call and love on his life? Or is something else motivating David? Perhaps David's devotion to God could be better served in a different way because acts of devotion should signal sacrifice, not might. prophet Nathan leaves this conversation with David, and in uh, the middle of the night, God comes to Nathan and speaks to the prophet Nathan about whether David should be building this house at all. And so David feels the need to build a house, but let's talk about God's need for a house. In this reflection that we read in chapter 7, beginning at verse 4, there's a conversation that goes on between the prophet Nathan and God in what appears to be some kind of vision that's had at night, like a dream or a night vision of sorts. And the dialogue here is essentially led by God in this conversation with Nathan. And the conversation goes like this. God says, should you, David, build a house for me? God says, I've never had a house. God then goes on to say, I've moved about over all the years in a tent. And then in somewhat of rhetorical ending to this uh, uh, night vision, uh, God says to Nathan, in all these years, have I ever even asked for a house? This is a fundamental theological statement going on here. What is it that God wants? What does God want? Now, we can tell from this text that God's never even asked for a house. Indeed, there are some limitations to a house, a, a temple, if you will. It will. It's a confining place. It, it defines this location. And remember that the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, is a symbol. It is not an icon. God does not dwell in the Ark. Rather, the Ark points to God. Even the things that are contained within the ark, the tablets given to Moses, the jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, they point to the mighty acts of God, the mighty provision of God. So the ark itself is a symbol. So what does it mean to build a temple for a symbol? It's almost what God is suggesting here, an act of redundancy, that the ark is not some visual representation of God. God, the God that we serve is not literally a box 
but the ark is a symbol. It's not an icon. And this takes us really to the second key passageway that, that begins to emerge in this conversation between Nathan and God. And that passageway is this, that God's perfect dwelling is in human flesh. This is the mystery that seems to elude humankind from the beginning to the end, that God seeks to be embodied. The image of God, as we know from the Genesis story, is within each human being. You see, a temple made out of cedar and stone is not enfleshment. It's not embodiment. And to be honest, we as human beings have a hard time dealing with the fact that God is in us and in others. So it's easier to fashion buildings and stuff as residences for God. It's easier for us to say that God is located here or there rather than to acknowledge the fact that God is in us. This little conversation between God and Nathan is so revealing and it's such a powerful theological statement. You see, buildings and things are not residences for God. They are symbols that point to the truth of God among us. Even look at what the ark itself contained. The law, the commandments that was given to Moses, those were given to us as a guide for how we might live before God. The jar of manna signals God's provision for his people in the wilderness. Aaron's rod that budded is a symbol of life even in the midst of death. Jesus himself is the ultimate revelation of this truth, God in the flesh. So God's perfect dwelling isn't a building. Rather, it's human flesh. It is our life and the life of others redeemed by the grace of God. Ultimately, in this story, God now begins to describe what this dwelling looks like. David wants to build a house for God. God's response is, when have I ever asked for a house? And so as we move into this third part of the text, beginning at verse 8 and onward, we begin to have this notion of house turned on end. So God says, well, sure, let's talk about a house. Let's talk about what a house really is. Now, in Hebrew, the, the root word for house uh, refers, of course, to a dwelling, like a building, a house, or a home where people live. But that same word, that same root word, also is the word that we use in Hebrew to refer to a son or a daughter. So in this case, that this word for house can mean a building or a shelter, but it can also mean a household, that it's actually a family, a lineage, a house, um, a house of people rather than a house made out of cedar and stone. And what this text is lifting up to us in verses 8 through 17 is both the apex of this story of David and it's also the problem of it at the same time. And this particular portion of text is often called the Davidic covenant. In other words, it contains the text of the covenant or agreement that God made with David. Now, throughout the Bible, there's lots of these covenants, beginning all the way back with Abraham, moving all the way forward to Jesus uh, in the Gospels as he sits at the, the table with his disciples at the Last Supper. He speaks of a new covenant he would make among them. 
Now, in the Bible, there's a different kinds of covenants, and, and they have a name. There's what's called a monopleric covenant and a dipleric. So those words are often confusing, but let me just explain them really quickly. In a dipleric covenant, that means there are two parties, di, and these two parties have agreements they make with each other. I'll do this, you do that, and if I don't do what I said I would do, there's going to be these consequences. And then there's another kind of covenant, which is like a monopleric covenant. And what that means is instead of two parties, there's one party. There's one party that does the work, one party that executes the duties and responsibilities, and it appears that the other party's job is to simply receive those things. And that's why this covenant is so odd. It is not dipleric, it's monopleric. God is the one in this covenant doing all the work. Even read the background of how how when God explains this covenant to Nathan, it starts out at the very beginning in verses 8 and 9 where God says, tell David this. God tells Nathan, deliver this message that I myself took you from the pasture, David. I myself have been with you, David. I have made you a leader, David. I have eliminated your enemies, David. The covenant begins with a statement of all that God has done for David. So what's clear is that David is not going to build a house, but that God is going to build a household, a Davidic dynasty. In other words, a lineage or a legacy for David that his descendants will rule after him. This is the the center of what's called the Deuteronomic history. In other words, it's the history of Israel told from the lens of the theology contained in the book of Deuteronomy. But what's interesting about this text and significant portions of it is that this text is written from the perspective of exile. So hundreds of years later, the the Jews will be conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile in Babylon. As they are in Babylon and the Jewish temple that David's son Solomon built was completely destroyed, there was this moment of self-reflection on the part of the Jews as to why is it We're now in exile. And so historians and theologians wrote a history about Israel that explains how they ended up in exile. And that history, one version of it, is called the Deuteronomic history. And Samuel and Kings, these two biblical books that are for us in English rendered into four books, these books explain that. This is why we're in exile that something went wrong here, that even though God made this covenant with David and for the Davidic legacy, something went wrong. Because you see, God seeks to make a way in human flesh. That's what we talked about a moment ago. And when humans depart from this reality, as David will do, it all falls apart. You see, God makes his dwelling among humans. This is God's sacrificial act. It's it's all the way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis. The thing that makes the Genesis story of creation so unique and so compelling, so powerful, is that when God creates all things, God doesn't create all things so that they could sacrifice and serve him. Rather, God creates all things for the sake of that which God has created. God is self-giving, loving, emptying, 
God serves the creation rather than the creation serving the serving God. This is what made the the Hebrew, the Jewish creation story unique among all other creation stories. That in all those other stories, the humans were created to serve God. In the Genesis story, humans are created to be served by God. God serves creation. And this is the final key passageway for this week. That God seeks for us to enjoy his great love. You see, this is the divine nature, self-giving, self-offering, self-sacrificing. And the great mystery, if you will, is this, that how is it that God can give everything in this sacrifice and yet lose nothing? Friends, this is our call, to enjoy God's great love and then to do the same. Give everything we have and yet lose nothing. This is very difficult in the rest of the story that unfolds in 2 Samuel and into Kings, and in that the, the Davidic dynasty, the great kings in the lineage of David, forget this deep and powerful truth. They assume that it's their job to protect, collect, aggrandize, and even to praise themselves. And we do the same thing as human beings. We try to protect, we try to aggrandize, we try to praise ourselves. Aren't we so awesome? And in doing so, we lose the capacity to enjoy the love of God. It is what David will forget in just the next couple of chapters if we continue reading this biblical book. And it's what we as human beings continually forget. God seeks for us to enjoy his great love. And God's delight is that we enjoy his love and offer it to all as we have received it, unconditionally, freely, with no strings attached yet every string attached. The grace we've received from God is free, and we are called to freely give it as we have received it. God seeks for us to enjoy his great love. That's it for this week. I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.